Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 54, and I'm joined by filmmaker Saul Pincus, who made a film in 2014 called Nocturne, starring one of my pals, Mary Cronert. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch The Big Lebowski. I'm Jeremy. I've seen this film a lot of times. I'm Saul. I have never seen this film. So we're talking about why that is. Because you think it's, you said, I think, and I quote, that it's the only Cohen you haven't seen that's worth watching. Well, that I've heard that's worth okay. watching that I haven't seen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was huge, huge fan of their work leading up to it as well. And I think the only reason I didn't see it was because it fell at a time when I was just busy doing career stuff. And, yeah. And mm-hmm. then I missed it in theaters. And I had a thing which went on for 20, 25 years where I would not see a movie unless I could see it theatrically. And then uh, as the ability to do that started to diminish, I, I started to cave a bit. Yeah. You know, as DVDs kicked in, it's certainly Blu-rays. So. This isn't bad. It's, it's not quite a theater in here, but it's, uh, it's, it's, cool. it's kind of like if you ever went to a movie at the Eaton Center back in the, in the 90s. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's a lot clearer <laughs> than that. They're, they're, they, 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 they did a personal installation of Vaseline glass to make sure that it, it looked as bad as it possibly could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, because when I was... Um, Cohen was the Coens were one of my big... Uh, when I was in film school, it was like my, the group that I was around. Like, we were just obsessed with the Cohen brothers. Um, you know, Barton Fink was... Probably the movie outside of this one that we rewatched the most and could quote, mm-hmm. uh, but this one was definitely one of the ones that we just really, really loved. Uh, this is uh, this is true. I mean, I don't think you had to be in film school to love the films for that. I mean, in terms of their craft and 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 the love that went into making their films, the subjects were almost secondary. I mean, the genre was important, but I think those things came first. And subject wise, you know, you're just sort of up for it. Right, as much as anyone was up for the, you just want to hang out with somebody who tells really great stories all the time and does them really well. And that's what the clones were to me. So yeah, and this yeah. is their version of doing like a Raymond Chandler novel, exactly. Um, but of course, you know they had done Miller's Crossing, which I guess you know would be. I, but that's a much more mature movie yeah. in a way. Like it's not there's yeah. a, there almost isn't as much of a wink to it as as a lot of their films have. This is true, you know. And it was early on. It's yeah. early on, but it's almost it was like as they were starting to find their voice because you've got, you know, Blood Simple, which is much more genre heavy, and then you've got Raising Arizona, which is bonkers. It's like a Looney Tunes cartoon, mm-hmm. um, and then you've got Miller's Crossing. Oh, is Miller's Crossing is third, right? I think it was third, and then Barton and Fink is right after Barton that. Was fourth, I think. So now you see them going back and doing this period gangster movie. Back into really heavy genre, but starting to find their own voice. Yeah, I mean, from the second you hear the whales in Raising Arizona, though, I mean, you just know you're in territory with people who are quite special. Well, that's yeah. just it. And, what, and whatever, whatever, like, subgenre they're playing with, they're still, like, you start to feel that there's really distinct stamp on it. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think one of, and and I haven't rewatched this one in forever, but one of my favorite movies was uh, the Man Who Wasn't There. Have you seen that one? No. Oh, it's it's bizarre. It's one of those films I heard was not tops, so I haven't seen. Oh, that. I don't know why that one came out when I was in film school, and I just re- and I think it was one of those ones that was very div- divisive, but I loved it. There's something so bonkers about it. It's like their take on kind of. You know, the 1950s. I don't even know what genre they're trying to fuck with. But it's gorgeous. It's this beautiful black and white movie. Mm. Uh, it's one of the movies that launched Scarlett Johansson. Mm-hmm. In a really interesting role. And Ghost role. World, right? Ghost World was right around the same time, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those two were back to back. And so th- that was one of the other films. But she plays this bonkers role in, in this one. That's uh, <laughs> a very interesting film to be one of your first films. Uh, anyway, I highly recommend The Man Who Wasn't There. Okay. Uh, it's got a great score. It's just really, really an interesting... And Tony Shalhoub has this amazing uh, cameo that practically steals the entire movie. And Billy Bob Thornton is phenomenal. At a time when he could still be phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's doing this really great, interesting, uh, kind of everyman character. And he does the, it's and it's narrated by him, and it's just I don't know. There's some, and Francis McDormand's amazing in it. Uh, yeah, it's now we're on a roll. Now we're, we're gonna, this is going to turn to a double double bill. Right, <laughs> sounds <roll>. like it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that being said, what do you know about the Big Lebowski? I know a lot of people who love it. I know that. Uh, what do I know about it? Uh, what do I know? Uh, let's see. That uh, Jeff Bridges can't walk around without being, without someone walking up to him and quoting him. Uh, quoting the picture is that popular I know it's like on the level of like maybe Ghostbusters or Star Wars for people who love you know the film in terms of quotability in terms of you know I know it's a, it, I know it's huge amongst those who've seen it and love it mm-hmm. I just haven't seen it amazing yeah that's an exciting black hole though oh yeah for sure I'm game like I'm really game I'm excited to watch it alright well let's yeah. just let's just do it then let's dive in okay let's do it let's all go to the lobby Alright, we just finished. And? And, yeah, jeez, uh, I wish I'd seen this 20 years ago. <laughs> it is, what is it now? It is 20 years ago, it right? It is 20 years, yeah. Yeah, almost, because uh, Fargo was 94, right? 96. 96, so this would have been 98. This is 98, this movie. Yeah. yeah. The, I didn't, this is the first time, I ha- it's been a long time since I've watched this. The, the, the thing that struck me this time was I didn't realize it was David Thewlis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, that, in that really small part. Yeah. Uh, and especially because I'm just watching season three of Fargo now, where he is the one of the villains, uh, or the villain, I guess. Uh, and so it's interesting to go, oh, right, he was already part of the Cohen catalog, and I didn't even realize it. Yeah, he's delicious. But the, there are so many delicious elements in this film, right? I mean, you know... <laughs> Yeah, this, this band that's just desperate for. <laughs> so, I just love it. It's great, and that's one thing I, I think I, I've taken away, and that I do in my stuff is that I love I love the idea of an ensemble and this like collection of people that you kind of reuse over in different movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple people here. He's he has never gone back and reused. Like, I don't think Julianne Moore is in any other Cohen movies. I don't think no. 
Um, Jeff Bridges, I don't believe, is in any other Coen Brother movies. No, but I don't think one can expect Bridges or Paul Newman or people who were already stars by the time they made these films, you know, considerable stars by the time they made these films, that you know, that, to come back many, many times over. I'm trying to think who, who would. Well, also, the dude is such an iconic character that... How you going to... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where, by this time, I think, this is John Goodman's fourth... Yeah, Cohen film. Sure, um, sure, and like it absolutely knocks it out of the park yet again. Like I mean, I sat there thinking, <laughs> this is just hilarious. Larry's character is just completely, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. I mean, there's so many strong performances. Shut the I, fuck up, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, that was a running gag we had in uh, in college, where we had a friend whose name was Donnie, and so <laughs> and he was, he wasn't even annoying. He was a lovely human being, but. <laughs> Yeah. Because of this movie, that guy got told to shut the fuck up way more times than he ever deserved to. It's really interesting how the film gets better and better as it goes on. Their mastery of dream, dream logic, you know, in all yeah. their films. But really, like, it really pays off here. Like, it just, you just completely buy into the experience. And it gets just, I just, that's the thing. I watched the first half hour and I'm like, yeah, it's fine, it's good. But it so pays off. And then it's got what most films don't have ever, an actual third act. Yeah, you know, I mean, it just it plays so well into into what it's set up, but it just, they do such a great job. It, it, you know, I remember seeing Hudsucker Proxy, and I remember thinking, well, that film doesn't really work, mm. and this works as much as that doesn't. This works like over, over the top for me as yeah. far as being fun. I like Hudsucker just in terms of its aesthetic. Yeah, it's, it's got this gorgeous look. This film is interesting. That I think the dream logic is exactly exactly it because. It kind of ends about 20 minutes before the movie ends, and then it has an epilogue. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, you don't want to leave the characters. I, I've, I have a feeling we might not have seen nearly as much of that. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, had the film not worked for them, or had it been not working for an audience, or not working for, you know, whoever, whatever their arrangement was as far as making the film. Uh, because one gets that sense, I'm bringing up the Hudsucker Proxy, but one gets the sense that that film was truncated as a result of not... Totally right. working, right? I mean, it was an expensive film. I think by far their first venture into any kind of visual effects or anything at all. But it was really like this film. This is this why I love this film so much, and I really love this film. Is that is that the you know you sit there and it just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving and characters like Jeff Bridges' character who could have become, I think so much of a caricature it isn't and so it just keeps giving and giving and giving i mean that's modulated so well through the film you just sort of just you know you feel you're totally into it and you continue wanting to be into it and i I can see why people want a sequel to this film with these characters you just want to spend time with them you do and that's the trick right and of course it's not just not just those characters it's it's the circus yeah. That, 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 you know, it's, it's sort of the paraded by you in this sort of film, as I was saying, that's really dream logic based. It's sort of, you know, this is when the Coens work, this is what, this yeah. is what works about it. And that's a, that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but it's true. They, they manufacture these really bizarre sort of circuses that yeah. sort of play, but in this way, the, the plot balances out quite well with characterization with also a way into the story for the average viewer. Uh, 
but you know, I mean, it's got all the lunacy of LA too, which is something that, you know, I've had, I've had the opportunity to, to touch, uh, <laughs> uh, but to, to actually come into contact with and, you know, and, and, and experience and, and, and have had to go in and out burger late at night and, and satiate myself, you know, over months that I was there and just, you know, sort of just sit there and have one's own sense of dream logic. Not, not nothing like this, but, you know, just sort of going to the magazine stands as, as they were back then, that would be the only place open and Ralph's, which is the only place, you know, that and magazine stands and in and out burger, I guess. And so for that, for, for me, the film came alive in those aspects those as well, details. having re-experiencing, but, but beyond that, uh, of course is wonderful. Yeah, but all those things. I think because this is coming on the heels of Fargo too. This is the Coens in their full power, where it's just do whatever you want for your next movie. Mm -hmm. Here's the money. What do you need? Probably they get final cuts. You know, nobody's questioning them at this point in their career. And ironically, they go to L.A., which is the source of all of of all things, right? As opposed to as opposed to taking a trip to Arizona, as opposed to going to Fargo, as opposed to going to somewhere weird, they go to someplace. Which is the weirdest place of all, which is which a lot of people would think is mainstream, but they do a fine job of giving you a sense of of just how weird it could be to live there for yeah. characters that are very germane, mundane and germane and, and insane and mundane. All these ains, you know, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. That environment, yeah, yeah. I just love how it just starts off with. Like there's no, I mean, the intro you get to the dude is just that bit in this in the supermarket with Sham Shepard just saying, "This is the dude. He's just the dude." Yeah. And then the first moment we get is is the story just starting, yeah. right away, and we're just catching up to them and the characters as it goes along. But then it 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 transcends the plot by the end. You know, the plot doesn't matter because nothing really pays off in any in any way you're expecting. Which is such a, a touchstone of the Coens as well, and the fairy tale quality, right? Which is, this, you know, again, as I, we were just talking before about dream logic, but dream logic existing in a sort of fairy tale about these, you know, the how, how the, the whole notion of trading of, of how the Big Lebowski, essentially, the sense of responsibility, gets traded from the Big Lebowski to, uh, and I could see that being an arc to, to Jeff Bridges, a character. He takes some form of responsibility by the end of the picture, right? Being the father of this, of, of this potential little Lebowski, but also in terms of taking care of, 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 of his friends in some way, right? And taking, and, and being the one who grows up a little, I don't think he ever grows up enough for anyone. The, the, how I looked at it was definitely, you know, that, and I could see that arc, but the film is so much more than mm. that, which is what makes it great. Yeah. 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 I love it. It's um, the music, just everything about it. It's it's got one of those great soundtracks. It's their uh, it's their usual. It's T Bone who does all of their their music supervision. But Skip, who did who did the sound design, it was very much a part of that of his of their early films. I yeah. mean, the New York style of sound design of that period, which was a very segregated kind of. It was a very it was a very different version of sound design than say West Coast sound design. The closest you got were Lynch film or David Lynch films in terms of the West Coast sound design, and, and that was Alan Splett, I believe, who did his. And they were quite. They were also psychological, very psychologically. I've never heard that before. Like the New York sound design versus the Los Angeles. What do you mean by that? Um. I guess the best way of describing it would be 
And I think Alan Splett was, I'm not sure whether he was originally West Coast or East Coast, but I guess, I guess you have to kind of look at, I don't want to like pontificate or anything, but you have to Do kind it. of look at, at the, at the period, which was, um, this is a period where independent films were still independent films and they they truly were independent at this not 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 necessarily at this point in their career but certainly blood simple yeah it was an independent film uh made by uh made by these guys and with their investors it was picked up by tom scoris of scoris pictures who and i only bring that up because tom saw my movie nocturne and recommended it to random media and said, you got to pick this up and I love it and this sort of thing. And that's why they're distributing my film. So, and so that's the, and, and so I know that he was in love with their movie. And I also know what that meant as far as penetration into the, into, into, uh, I guess just distribution channels, which were then so distinct, right? It was really just through studios. Um, I remember reading about blood symbol for the first time in American cinematographer in the early or mid nineties. I didn't really go to film school. Mm -hmm. I went to communication studies school, but I went to be, but, but long before that I was a precocious kid, you know, and, and, and doing things. And so I, I picked up a lot through collecting books and things and reading about it, but I didn't get it done through film school. No, but, but, but definitely getting back to the question of sound design, um, there was a different, a New York style. There was New York style to editing, which you can see in a lot of early Woody Allen films, uh, Ralph Rosenblum's style of editing. Others. Have you read his book? Oh yeah. yeah, that was one of the first first books I read before I understood anything about how the business side of the business worked. And then I kind of put it away, and then I read it five years later, and I went, "Ah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah." Uh, I don't think Ralph, you know, he became a pillar for sure in the community, and there's a, there's a dedication to him in Rockport, Maine, where he I believe he taught at the workshops. You know, after he passed away, there's a little monument to him there. But he didn't get gigs after writing that book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so there was a New York style. And that's what I'm saying. New York style is quite different from the L.A. style. The L.A. style was really primarily based on cranking stuff out. That's a simplistic way of putting it. But in New York, generally, I mean, in the independent film uh, uh, area, of New- in terms of creating those, pro- uh, those, those pieces, uh, there was definitely a style that was maybe more psychological, maybe more, reliant, more on more love. sound design. Sorry? A little more love. A little more love, but really also kind of, you know, they didn't have the money to create the images. Doing this, doing it in sound was a lot simpler. Right. And so um, maybe it didn't take, you know, quite like two or, two or three passes in terms of two or three tracks of sound, but it was certainly a lot less expensive. Yeah. So all these factors historically and, and practically and uh, psychologically, just in terms of what people thought, people often thought New York films were deeper than obviously than LA films, but that's part of what th- this film plays with is the notion of what's deep and you know, what's not deep as far as how much you got to think about things. And yeah. And, and so what are, what, what um, surprised you about this movie in terms of what your expectations were versus what it is, how um calculated I felt going with their flow and how they seemed to make a film that went with the flow even though it had to be calculated I mean it had to be calculated I didn't feel as I have felt with some of their less successful films that you know 
that that struck me as calculated. Um, certainly, Hudsucker Proxy would be one, but but I can you know name a few others. I'm thinking of Lady Killers. I'm thinking of other films where I'm sure to them, you know, they don't feel the calculation in some cases. But obviously, we know as filmmakers, one has to consider the layers. One has to consider why things are the way they are. It's hard to believe. I mean, even though you can see the similar stamps, that the same people that made Lady Killers made this. Yeah, it's. Sure, but it's also not so hard to believe because at the same time, it's, they're not their point. This they're they're not nearly at this point in their career that they are here. As you point out, this was them being given what they want. I mean, this is essentially Spielberg was given. You know, he probably was given a lot of freedom with Close Encounters, although not quite as much. This what what they seem to have done with Fargo and with The Big Lebowski is what Spielberg did with 1941. Right. And then, of course, he recalibrated and he gave us CT yeah. and he gave us Poltergeist in one year. And that's a whole other thing. But yeah. yeah, but this is during that golden period. You know, they go from Fargo to this into O Brother. Yeah. Um, I think O Brother was after this, right? Yeah. And just I don't love O Brother as much as a lot of people like it. I think I, I didn't think it was as strong as a film. But that doesn't mean that I'm right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on certain levels, it's really kind of cool. I think it gets by a lot on its music. Yes. I think it gets by on its quirkiness, but not necessarily brilliance as a film, just just my opinion. Um, it also gets by on the fact that it was really the first, like technically the first um, mainstream visual intermediate to be a full-on-out use of that technology to really create a unique palette that mm-hmm. wasn't just about darkening black levels or you know doing things that that were kind of a a means to an end this was an actual you know was, uh, that was anyway Giving it, no, no no but i remember i remember when the when the when it came out on dvd it had a whole bonus feature about the digital intermediate and how they achieved mm-hmm. that look making you know because when they shot it, it's lush green and mm-hmm. they and they changed it all in the post to make it look like, like the, the dust bowl days mm-hmm and and I think it was two the two color look I think was the approach to it wasn't it as opposed mm-hmm. to just being like a three color look more like two color cut to color, I I know it was a variation on that that was the intent yeah yeah so that was really cool, but uh, no I, I really uh, let's see what else what else today, well you know struck by the range of the cast as well I mean it's just like hardly anyone shows up in this movie who isn't somebody who is wonderful as an actor who you know really well. Um, Julianne Moore, you point out, you know, it seemed like uh, watching this again, I thought, right, Julianne Moore in the 90s taking her clothes off, right? This happens often. Yeah, shortcuts. <laughs> and yeah, she did not, see, she went through this period where she just did not give a shit about appearing naked in movies. No, not certainly no. Shortcuts, shortcuts was, uh, I think, the first film I saw her in. And I saw a 70 millimeter print on a very big screen. And that was a very, very, you know, uh, shall we say, vivid visual. Yeah. Uh, but no, she she doesn't, you know, but she's fascinating. And the thing is, the strength of her performance makes everything about what she's doing valid and work. And that's really the trick. There's a lot of nudity in this movie for a Coen Brothers picture, I found. Yeah. But, but it's all character based and it's all, and I mean, that wonderful montage as he's going down the alley and going, going through the. You know, all the women lined up on the alley. Yeah. And he's rotating. And yeah, the dream to... montage in here is great. But you've also got a great bizarre visual of just this woman floating through the air. And yeah. you realize she's on, not a trampoline, but 
some yeah, kind of towel blanket that yeah. they're all throwing up. Well, again, it's dream psychology, right? It's just the transitions, and it's all California. And what one thinks about California, that's what they're playing with. It's wonderful, right? It's sort of like it's like a combination of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and uh, and the Party in a way, right? I mean, although the Party is a much the Peter Sellers version is incredibly racist movie, but very funny for the time. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to go back to some of these movies and not and not find that really hard. Yeah, I love too that this movie just and he even comments on it about halfway through. Uh, you know, it all starts from just somebody pissing on his rug. Yeah. <laughs> the rug that really has had the room together. And, yeah. And, <laughs> and, that's... and you, this is something you have a chance to reflect on seeing the film again. And this is what, this is the feeling I had coming out of this was that I will see this again, whether it's, whether it's in a year or, or a year and a half or whenever, but it will reveal layers that, I don't already see, although I see plenty as far as the setup with the toes, and I see plenty with, you know, one feels it, but as far as the, the, the details meaning something, this is what I talked about before, with about the first act being, okay, yeah, kind of okay, but not particularly remarkable to me, but then that reveals the brilliance of the film, because it gets better and better, and really that's the thing, first act, second act, third act gets really better, and the fact that, I don't know if you feel this way too, most films don't have third acts, but they don't have third acts that are worthy third acts. They have these sort of placeholder third acts, which are not really story-wise strong third acts. This one seems to. So it was nice to. You're not. I'm not trying to be film schooly about that. That's okay. I'm just trying to be get as, nerdy as you know, as you know, kind of just when when one feels that level of substantial storytelling, mm-hmm. it's very gratifying, and it's what brings you back to a movie. Yeah, and I think what, what what happens with them, and I know of their writing process, is that they don't outline at all. They they take lots of naps and they paint themselves into corners, and just make their way out of it. And then I'm sure they revise as they go along at the end. But they, and that's the key thing, they they are a team, and they talk to each other, and they f- obviously feel as comfortable with one another as a as people in a writer's room would. If they had made that pact to be in a room and working together and collaborating, that uh, ability to write with someone else is very different, as you may know, than working working on your own. Absolutely. And even if you work on your own and then you bring it out there and you read it amongst a group of people and then you get feedback, it's still a completely different process. These are people who clearly have this partnership, which is personal because they're brothers. How much they hang out, I don't know. I don't know them personally. You don't know them personally. We only know what they want us to know about them. Yeah, which is, which is limited. limited. Yeah, yeah. But it's but but they obviously have this partnership and this ability to dialogue that ha- that gives us you know dialogue amongst themselves. I mean, which gives us this wonderful alive uh, feeling in most of their films, which gives which is quite different from you know. I think a lot of people who write on their own where you feel they're trying to construct something, but these things they rarely jump off the screen. And of course there's other, there are other elements too. Of course the casting is phenomenal and, the, and yeah. you know, just, but I think you're right. I do know it's just like, just for, cause I've, uh, I have things I've written on my own and then I have some other projects I've, I've co-written and, and there's a, a much different process involved. And just that idea of being able to get on, a call or whatever it is and just riff with somebody and just what comes out of that riffing mm-hmm. um, when you're just talking unfiltered is, is amazing. Uh, and it's stuff that's just hard to, to figure out on your own. 
and pushing and being able to be pushed to that next level before you're even one line of dialogue or two lines of dialogue into the scene. Like, even if you structured the story, depending on how you work, some people they structure, some people they don't, some people they mildly structure and they follow their muse. And you can listen to John Milius and he'll tell you that, no, no, I want to kind of know where it is, but I don't ever want to imagine where it's going to end up. And you watch a film and you go, how can you not know that? What a mind, because the films that, some of the films that he's done have had these incredible, you know, stories which are archetypal in a way how could he not know that or i don't know whether that's his his bullshit or whether that's true but it's but uh but for sure getting getting together with someone it really raises your game yeah so and this is at that period too where there and i think it was a union thing is what reason they did it where they were still um separating their titles and roles where you have joel's the director ethan's the producer mm-hmm. but they're both directing you know, they're both producing. Yeah. Uh, and now they're sharing directing credit, but that didn't start until, uh, you know, three or four films down the line from this. Again, an example of a film that's, you know, in a reason, and, and I'm only substantiating what you're saying, so I would have said something similar because I was thinking a few minutes ago about the Zucker brothers, Zucker, Abram Zucker, yeah. at the time, and their films and how alive their films feel. Uh, they're completely different films and oh, they're not course, nearly yeah. successful. But recently I watched Airplane again, which, uh, you know, it's one of those things on it's Saturday night and you're home with your wife and you're like, you know what? I was, I'm in the mood for something funny and that's what's on Netflix. Oh, you know, no, I've seen no, Okay, fine. You put that on. Right. And then, you know, other than again, a few offensive beyond defensive things. It's in that one film, of my black holes. So careful. I haven't seen airplane. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I won't talk about the film. Don't, you, don't, don't, don't go into details about it. But. I won't talk about the film, but I will, but I, but I, but I will say that it is, um, without, without talking about it, I've already, I've already been somewhat effusive, haven't I? <laughs> uh, I think, I think the, the challenge, the challenge with any, uh, I think any construct is to keep it, Real enough within the confines of the of the world you're creating, but also keep it alive mm-hmm. and feel like there. It's it keeps it feels in in some way uh, it keeps rolling, you know. That yeah. And I think that I think that the three of them, when they work together, even on some of the lesser films, were quite were quite strong. But they didn't do that many films together. But yeah, yeah no airplanes. Of, wow, you haven't seen airplanes. I know it's one of my weird ones. But and that's what's great about the the Coens is, is that they you know they collaborate from the beginning to the end like they they co-edit as well they use their their alias yeah um, Roderick James with Tina who's Tina in this no film? no Trisha Cook Trisha she's a real person she's a real person the, yeah. and this is because that's I noticed that this time around too that it's like oh they did work with somebody else um, I think it was coming out because it was during Fargo that they got outed with Roderick James yes yeah. because he had nominated yeah and they wouldn't let because they wanted to hire an actor. To seat fill for yeah, in I'd case heard, I'd heard that yeah. in case that he won the Oscar, but they wouldn't let him because of the Marlon Brando yeah. N- Native American stunt. Um, there's a really funny if you want to get super nerdy um, on the commentary track yeah. for Man Who Wasn't There. Yeah, phenomenal commentary because it's the Coens with Billy Bob Thornton, and it's hilarious. 
But there's this moment where in the middle of it, they start, uh, Billy Bob Thornton just starts talking about Roderick James, the editor. He says, hey, and he just tells a story about how he ran into him. He's like, hey, I ran into your editor at this health food store. Right, it's just an in-joke. Well, but he, he goes on like for five minutes about this story, this ma- clearly made-up story yeah. about how much of a dick he is. Yeah. And just, it's, it's, I, mean, I wish I could tell you what point in the commentary is happening, but, uh, but it's phenomenal. Especially when you know the... And they never let up. They play right into it. Especially when you know, like, the nerdy history of how he's not hes not real and right. all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I will... Let me, for one second, go back to Airplane not tell you anything about it, but except to tell you that John Landis had a huge influence on that film, both in terms of the dialogue in that film and also in terms of the Zucker Abrams, uh, Zucker team, um, and basically supporting them from Kentucky Fried Movie all the way through that. But you know what? You should see that film, and uh, yeah. I will. It's one of my big black holes. And I need to get a copy of it. I have a DVD. Okay. But okay. Netflix has it. Oh, I would rather. Netflix is, is sometimes problematic out here. Okay, all right. All right. So I try, I try We that. should get back on the subject. I'm yeah. not sure. Back to the Coens. Back to the Coens, yes. Um, yeah, no. Um, What else? There's so much. Like, uh, the, 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 the until, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman is phenomenal in this mousy, weird role. Um, yeah, well, now that's, that's the thing about him, is you watch him, and I feel, I feel like I'm, I, I feel extremely, you know, blessed that, that this guy made movies, and I also can't help but feel sad. Yeah. Because... Ultimately, it did a minute, but that's the, you know, I, I'm not naive about the business either, but it's very, but you watch him and he's just note perfect at the front of the film in a way that's, it fits perfectly into this, this tapestry, you know? Yeah. And this is a time, this is a weird, this is that like, just, this is like Boogie Nights-ish kind of like. Well, that's what I was going to say. Well, you've yeah. got half that, not half a cast, but you know, we got, you got Julianne, you've got him, yeah. but it's also, it was just. It wasn't just those. It's not just Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coens, but like the, a lot of the actors in this are those actors that are circulating around that, you know, amazing independent, mm-hmm. auteur-driven films that were happening in the nineties. You know, Buscemi and um, I'm trying to think of who else, but it's it's just full of that and these people that are just like being recycled through different movies. In but that time but period. as I and I would say, as a group, even though you couldn't think of them as a single group, I would say much more successful in bridging the gap between indie movies and mainstream films that they eventually became associated with, or maybe more indie-styled mainstream films that would take hold in the two thousands and that sort of thing um, through studios. Then, uh, then, then, then generations earlier. It's interesting too. You see Ben Gazzara in this movie, and when he showed up, I'm like, that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the, basically, it's almost the tip of the hat saying, that's right, I'm going to bring out all the indie, indie ideas. And, and then, and of course, the one thing that, that I was struck by, you know, in terms of the ear being bitten off is this would be the second, this would be the, officially, the ear being bitten off is the, is the indie film trope of the 1990s. Yeah, this is, this is uh, <laughs> six years after Reservoir Dogs. That's right. Uh, with Buscemi, who's 10 right. feet away from him in the scene, right. was uh, also in. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it was very much a. Uh, it was interesting to see what we had, what indie films would have to do to be shocking in that time. That's another thing that 
you know, I mean, I don't know if we're going... I don't, you're going to snip some of this, yes? No, I don't snip anything. Okay, all right, never mind. <laughs> Speaking of snipping... I still got my ear on, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it made me think of the giant scissors when in the yeah. dream sequence when he's thinking about the Germans cutting his penis off. Yeah. <laughs> all I could think of was Mike Myers' character, you know, Dieter. Uh, I don't know if, yeah. if that's true, if that's going reaching back a little bit. Of course, they were going to do a movie once with Karen Denny, and he famously bailed on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just thought of John Polito. Oh, I love John Polito. John Polito yeah. has a great bit in, uh, as, because he's only in here for really one scene. He follows them around yeah. in, in the car, but he's just got that one scene where he's telling the dude how impressed he is by him and what a great detective he is. Do I remember Polito from from Miller's Crossing? Or yeah. From, yeah, that's Miller's Crossing. Uh, yeah. But he's, all, he's also got a really great part in Men Who Wasn't There as well. Right. Um, yeah, and, and do you have you read much Raymond Chandler? No. So he he wrote The Big Sleep, um, and the, another one that was uh, Altman turned into The Long Goodbye. Yes. Is that right with um, Elliot Gould? That's right. Uh, is another the John Williams scored, and you know that John. There's there's a piece of The Long Goodbye. This is just a, just a little bit of trivia. There's a piece of The Long Goodbye, the score from that film, in The Last Jedi, in the casino sequence. Oh. No, I didn't know that. That's amazing. It's just weird. Um, so, so they and, that, and that's both. Um, oh, what's the character name? Philip. I can't remember the name of the detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philip no, something. I, I know. I you know what I'm talking about. The, yeah, the yeah. detective that uh, Bogart plays, and then Sam El, or Elliot Gould plays the same character in The Long Goodbye. Uh, and so I, I want. I was. I've got them all downstairs. Uh, chapters at one point when I was in my teen years put out, re-released, uh, not Chapters did, but whatever publisher did, re-released them all together in a box set. Mm-hmm. And so I picked them up for, I think, eight bucks each and, and went through and, and, and read them all. And uh, and I knew when when this had come out, they they kept on referencing Chandler and how they'd wanted to make a Raymond Chandler-esque movie, um, which is basically just your typical detective story uh, where you've got your, you know... Detectives hired by the rich guy, but there's something really going on underneath all of this, and there's the femme fatale, and there's all these things. And so, uh, if you've read, especially Chandler in particular, because he's got such a specific formula to his books, uh, although they're always surprising in a weird way, they, they as much as you think you know what's going on, there's always a little rug pull underneath. And so, you know, having been so inundated with those books and kind of mildly obsessed with them, Seeing how they take all of those tropes and then make them uniquely their own mm-hmm. is really, really fascinating. Uh, just because they because they stick to it, but it's just you know the dude is not your typical detective, but that's exactly what he is. Yeah, you know he's a detective role, and you've got John Goodman as the sidekick role, and you've got Julianne Moore is the femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess Bunny is technically too, but she's barely she's barely has any screen time. You know, she has that one great line, but I'll suck your dick for a thousand dollars. And then the yeah, uh, she's inconsequential compared to yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the thing is, it's interesting that you mentioned that, and because I'm not familiar with the books, I can't continue on that line. But what I can say is that at the same time, you had things like Get Shorty coming out, and Elmore Leonard yeah. seeing a bit of a revival as far as his his work, um, and. 
that Get Shorty was, I think, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, wasn't it? Yeah, who was one of well, the, who was their was editor. The, 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 no, no their DP, their DP, their DP, yeah. Their DP, and responsible for that cartoon look of, the, of you know, of yeah. much of the... Er, their well, he was war. with them up until Miller's, I think, right? That's, I think it was... No, I think it was... Yes, because if that was their third one. He did Miller's. Yes, that's right. Hudsucker was, was Deacon's the, the first Deacon's first shot. one, and then... Uh, but I mean, arguably, that cartoony feel, certainly, of Raising Arizona and... Absolutely, yeah. yeah, but but that the, they were going in the direction of that genre is what I mean. You know that 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 genre was was ripe for, and partly due to Tarantino. Oh know, yeah, and partly due to all those tributes at that time, and partly due to you know so many in, indie filmmakers were, and so many people in film school that I I could see either around me or, doing their or crime on films. the periphery. Yeah, oh, doing same. their best at trying to revisit that genre. Um, with the twist, you know, offered by those, by the availability of books that have become repopularized, the, the authors that we were talking about is uh, very much a staple of the '90s. I think. Yeah, same. I was in film school in the in the early 2000s, and so it was just ripe with people just doing imitations of Tarantino and yeah. Coen's and Paul Thomas Anderson, and just people just trying to regurgitate that in their own way and failing miserably and five years and five years later probably or maybe even then uh wes anderson yep uh, no wes anderson and then too i at think at that point because yeah rush ten and bombs right and ten and bombs had just came out in probably 99 or 2000 yeah something like that um 99 being like a golden year for for a lot of that um i remember yeah. seeing rushmore and thinking that i remember turning to my wife at the time and still my wife very much happily so is that um that uh is saying you know that was that was me and she's just gonna say i was gonna say exactly that like that guy was me in high school except that wasn't me i didn't have that relationship <laughs> so yeah it was just fascinating you know kind of fascinating anyway but you might think you should check out um some raymond chandler because in particular what they they take from that as well is the the california setting Mm-hmm. Um, is I I don't want to say it's in all of their books, but I feel like it is, um, and, and and similar to uh, uh, you know what you loved with the In and Out Burger and the Randys and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think there's a very Ralph. Yeah. Ralph sorry, uh, there's a very similar something in Randy's Burg- Donuts. Yeah, you reason. think you're Randy's Donuts? Yeah, <laughs> um, no, but then there's Johnny's and all these other, all these other yeah these ones. What did you like seeing this film again? Let's talk about. Let's talk about that. What oh. layers can you unpeel after 20 years? Uh, how many times have you seen this film? I've probably, I, I could safely say I've probably watched this film anywhere between six and a dozen times. And, and, and every single time you've been sober? Uh, no. Okay. Definitely not. I'm sure there was a couple times in the middle where I, I had had some imbibing of some source or Because this does seem to be like a film that could be enjoyed. A drug movie, oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm sure I've watched this movie high. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it gives you a different vibe to it, for sure. Um, I don't know, what did I enjoy this time? I think, it, for me now, putting on a movie like this is, is akin to like watching a Greatest Hits album, where you're just really enjoying moments. I remember sitting there, there's that... Uh, bits, I don't know, through, uh, halfway through the movie or so, when they go visit the uh, the kid who they think stole the money or, or who has the money, 
Um, and his dad's an iron lung. Is the iron lung? What is that thing? It's an machine? iron lung. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the guy who wrote <laughs> the TV show writer. Yeah. And I, I remember what, when we were probably around the first act, knowing that moment was coming, going, I can't remember how the fuck they get to that. How do they get there? Uh, and that's what I was, I kept on remembering all like the great moments and like the, and the pieces and then trying to remember how they got from one point to the next. Because that's the great thing too about um, about this movie is that even though it meanders and it goes on these tangents, um, it really does follow this great straight line. Mm-hmm. You know, it um, which is what makes it remarkable. Frankly, the focus in this film is astonishing. That's the other word that occurred to me in the first act and the second. We were watching. I was like, my God, how focused for something that's just a parade. You know, it's just wild, but it's totally a focused film. And that's just, it's, it's amazing. The power of clarity and simplicity and simplicity is so underrated people, you know, a lot of filmmakers, the wannabe filmmakers, people who make films, so many things out there are not clear or, or don't have a mission, you know, and sometimes the mission is just so easily, it's just so obvious what that mission is that the film is just a uh, you know, it's really a sludge to get through, but yeah, with these guys, man, it's so clear. It just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And what is his mission to you for for you in this movie? Because originally, it's just get his mission. The dudes get through the day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's like get his rug back. Yeah, just you know, be happy, be be content. He's a simple. He's a simple guy. I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of the. Uh, I'm trying to think of the classic uh, fairy tale. Uh, equivalent of this character. I'm reading my daughter who's six. And I read a lot of, uh, you know, fairy tales, a lot of, a lot of fairy tales, a lot of books. And, uh, you know, and, and so you, you get your, you get back in touch with these very simple characters. And I'm reading her a, a book. And, and this is not a good example, but like, as, just as an example of how different the world of children's books are, I'm, I'm reading this book that I had when I was a kid that I gave to her, which is this Burton Ernie book and somehow it involves pirates and walking planks and 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 but is wonderfully a wonderful uh, meaningful wraparound in the way that all the Muppet stuff was or at least the uh, uh, books that they would author at the time is that hadn't yet become a cash grab yeah and uh no it's just it's a very simple it, this thing, that's the thing the film is simple but the needs of the main character are extraordinarily simple it's really just get through the day yeah yeah yeah, it moment. makes me think of, uh, I just started taking the uh, David Mamet master class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, and the way he talks about plot uh, mm-hmm. is so much of what I've read everywhere else and, and work on my own. But his is just so simple. He just uses this giant butcher paper. And he's like, you start over here, you want to go there. It's just a straight line. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And, the th- and, that's, and things that happen go up and down, and that's fine. And how you know it's something you can use is whether or not even if it's a weird tangent, as long as it's connected to get you back to that line. Uh, and, and he goes you through that and he breaks down uh, American Buffalo and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and just shows you how uh, that line flows along. And it's just like, yeah, when it, when it works and when it's good, it is that simple. Right. Even though it's so convoluted. But the idea has to serve. Yeah. The, you know, you can't just sort of, I mean, as you know, I mean, it, it, it's great for him to say that, but then it's not just that. It's the start. You have to start 
with an idea, a construct, obviously something unique enough, but 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 the way you tell the story and your point of view and what makes it unique, but your ability to be clear and just go from here to here. I know it's something it's but it isn't something that that everyone necessarily can do. No. And also and, today we're very distracted, right? I mean, you look at some of the earliest films and certainly you look at theater, which is a good example of this, is that you're limited by the pizzazz that you can achieve. So you have to be strong. It really focuses you to look at... That's one reason why you look at classic films, not just to feel nostalgic for that, but also to, to the ability to actually sort of simplify and say, okay, well, you know, because that's another thing about this, looking at the Cone Brothers. The Cone Brothers are really definitely one of the key distillations of the film school ideal, which is... And I think that's coming back to what I was saying before I saw the movie, which is that, you know, they they combine the ability to uh, of, of the frugality of not having too much money to do something mm -hmm. um, with the intense ability to uh, to to the uh, uh, love of craftsmanship and the the. Uh, the, the the joy that they have in their mind is okay. I want the audience to love the movie as as much as I love the movie. I really don't think most films that are you know in theaters today have that uh, have that goal in mind. They their goal is we want put audiences in the seat. So we want to make the money, yeah. but and not to be not to be naive. But really, there is that is the difference between those who who are the players and those who are simply the posers, right? So the thing is, is that, and you get crossover films, which, which can be that way. Spielberg is, he want, certainly early in his career, he wanted you to love the filmmaking as much as you love the experience and, 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 you know, and create an experience where you love the filmmaking as much as you love the, the every man yeah. in that environment, uh, out of his element, so to speak. Uh, an ordinary man in extraordinary situations that was the basis of his, of most of his films. Anyway, uh, getting back to to the point is that, yeah, that's what makes the Coen brothers, I think, very, very unique. They are, they they operate on, much like Woody Allen, on, on basically a sense that their films aren't going to cost that much money. Uh, if but they lose money, they won't lose a ton of money. No, that's just it. And, but you, and you're going to get something really special that you'll never be able to get from anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they are one of those true, you know, when I think of the great filmmakers uh, that I grew up, at a time they were making films and continue to make films, they're definitely at the top of the list. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people that I get excited. And they're, the, they're one of those few filmmakers that, you know, if they have a film coming out, I'm going to see it. You know, it doesn't matter what it's about. I'll just go and see it because it's them. And and I think it's I think it's it's still obvious that you know that they care about craftsmanship. I mean, one of the films that I can think of, I haven't seen every single one of their most recent pictures, but A Serious Man is a film that I absolutely love to bits. Uh, and I'm not so sure where it stands in their pantheon. I think a lot of people like it. I don't know what you, you know, think. I I got to be honest. That's one of their ones. I've only seen it once, and I. I, I mean, I'm not have not being from the Jewish background. I think I miss a lot of it, um, but I know you know of my Jewish friends, of which I have very many. Uh, they love it, and because I, I think there's a bit of an in, inside 
insiderness to that movie. It was a love letter to 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 being uh, to, to to growing up. Uh, definitely, uh, I'm certainly even, whether you grew up in the '60s or not. Uh, the the whole the whole the way the film starts certainly I can I can attest to that it was definitely yeah. so I, I, that's one of the ones that I do have it I picked it up because I pick up all their stuff the only movie I haven't bought of theirs is Lady Killers just because I hated it that much yeah um, but everything else I have and so I I, I I do need to go back and revisit it and I just realized I was wrong Jeff Bridges was in another, True Grit he was in True Grit that's right he did yeah, do another one of the that. movies yeah um, different enough from this picture. very different and great, but also it makes you realize how much Jeff Bridges has aged since uh, since they did this movie. Well, that's interesting. Although he's putting it on a bit in True Grit. Right. What's interesting about about this too is there were definitely moments where I felt that he was that Jeff Bridges was drawing on the Jeff Bridges um, kind of archetypal role from the nineteen seventies. Like even in there was a bit where he just flies back on the couch and kind of disgust, not disgust, but more like just sort of throwing his hand up. Or in that moment, I saw the Jeff Bridges from King Kong. Mm. <laughs> you know, just that that was... And then there was this other moment where he's in the fantasy sequence where he's got his father's bug eyes that, again, I'm going to... I can't spoil Airplane, but this is a running theme of our conversation because Lloyd Bridges is an airplane. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he is unforgettable. So, you know, you, anyway, okay. So you see, I can't talk about these movies independently because this, for me, this is, this is the outright the, the link. comic nature of some of the moments in this yeah. film are just, yeah. But Bridges in this movie is, is just a revelation. And, and you just watch, I can only imagine how much fun he's having. Just with everything, even yeah. just the way, uh, the way it feels ad-lib too, like some of these great lines and moments, but you know they're carefully constructed. Like there's that whole sequence where he's just kind of, he's sitting up with his, his legs between his knees and in, in the limo, talking to the driver. He's just made his white Russian, and then he 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 keeps the cup. He walks out, and then he's clocked, and the guy grabs him. And he's thrown into another limo, and he just he says, "Yeah, careful, man. There's a beverage here." That's right. And he still keeps it upright. That's he right. still manages to hold on to that drink. Uh, and just the level of care and craft that goes into a moment like that, that just shows how much, you know, the Coens and also him, they just love that character. Another, another, well, two, two thoughts come to mind with that. His first thought was that this had to be a watershed, not just what it's become as in, in terms of people loving the film, but in terms of the type of roles that he was getting at the time. It had to be a, a, a different enough a picture uh, that, 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 that it would have, you know, made him... Uh, again, rise to the occasion in a way that, that that he wouldn't necessarily have. I don't know. You know, it's tough because he wasn't only he was doing thrillers and romantic pieces, and he wasn't really getting this kind of movie at all. No. And that's and at the time, I can only imagine he would have just sort of think, well, "Great, this is lots of fun." My other thing was going to be though, uh, trope of the other trope of the '90s, tossing people in and out of uh, uh, limos. Uh, <laughs> would have would have been a Galaxy Quest because it happened just a year yeah, after yeah, this. Yeah. But anyway, that's a minor trope. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed too in this, um, and I don't think it's it's necessarily a Cohen staple, but um, just how how much they use the oneer, um, yeah. and, they, and they don't necessarily do full scenes in oneers, but they they do a lot of these great shots. They're just letting us linger with these characters. Uh, in particular with Bridges and, and... I see that part. It's hard to separate now because they've been doing and they've been working together for 20 years. But uh, Deacons, 
Although, did Deacon Zeus like this? Like, did he do Hail Caesar? I can't remember. I can't remember either. But but they've got a pretty Mary Zoffries, and they've got a pretty core team of people they work with. Right. I can't. I can't separate. The point is, is I can't separate who's who. But but it's very much a Deacon's thing, as far as you know. Keep it simple. Yeah. Even even lenses sort of keep it right in the middle, not too wide, not no, too tight. No, they like shooting their twenty eights and their thirty fives. But you look at. Uh, you look at um, uh, Barry Seinfeld's approach. It's very different. Very, very different. So, no, they were open to that for sure uh, earlier, but I think Deacon is, you know, again, provided more of a classical focus, really. I think he solidified their look. Like, mm-hmm. like what I really love about their look, if you want to, you know, with the lenses, is just you notice the way, um, how present the environment is in all of their shots, mm-hmm. you know, even in, you know, the medium shots, you know, this, they don't use a lot of tight shots. They're very spare with them. Again, it's a low budget. It's, it's, it's an approach. It's basically, it's like, you know, we don't have the time or the, and I don't know for a rule that they don't do coverage. I just know that it's not a coverage approach at all. And I think they just use it in moments where it's important. I think they, yeah. you know, cause their background is as editors too, right? Mm-hmm. Like they started off editing for Sam Raimi mm-hmm. and, and so they just know, and you're, you have a background as an editor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we know the value of certain shots and we know when you don't need them. Oh, we also know value of, uh, something that's planned. And so few people, I think so few film goers, even filmmakers, unless they're accomplished, have done a lot, really understand the concept of a, people working in the film business is maybe more what I mean, um, really understand the, that most things we see are not planned, hmm. are certainly not crafted, really, as they could be crafted. And I don't mean, you know, with a perfectionist approach, I mean just crafted. I mean just intentional. Um, yeah. You know, even even Mr. Spielberg is is known for shooting tons of film, and I know this on, you know, I know this on secondhand, firsthand, secondhand authority. He shoots and shoots and shoots and shoots and shoots, but that's why he does still does sixty five days a movie, not because he not because he needs sixty five days anymore, but because his process is to shoot and the next day come back and jog his mind, and go, you know what, I could do this better. So he'll, so there's another Steven Spielberg movie or three or four for every film he's finished, mm-hmm. virtually every film he's finished. But I, but again, the notion of planning and, and, and absolutely, this is this is definitely yeah, something we don't have that luxury of the sixty five days. <laughs> no, no, but 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 it is a but it is a it, and that that does make a difference. I mean, you know. Again, it's tangential now, and I I like going off on tangents from time to time. But it just strikes me that it's it's very much, and certainly was very much a, a kind of rite of passage. As an independent filmmaker, you're given, you know, nowadays if you're given 15 days, I guess that's a lot. But if you're given 20 20 days, you should be able to make a feature in 20 days. Well, yeah, kind of, sorta, by the hair of your, by the skin of your, by the skin of your teeth. You know, and and it looked like that. And when Spielberg made a picture in twenty days, I think he actually, I think that was dual. And I think it was longer than twenty days. I think it was thirty days. And it's only seventy-seven minutes, or at least yeah. you know the original version. I've never, so, I've never had twenty days. No, I know, but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like it's sort of a standard kind of. Yeah, might have been fifteen, fifteen, eighteen, and sixteen. Orgy was. Orgy was uh, eighteen. Okay. 
with my longest shoe. But it was pretty much it was one look. It's very, it's very contained. Location, it's right? very contained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a project that's coming up that's going to be twenty. Yeah. Um, and that's just because it's a ton of locations, and I begged for twenty because like, I just want the time. Sure. Uh, but even nice. that's not really time. That's that's enough time. No. And just enough. But that's not, just it. You know. But uh, anyway, we could we could we could talk about why you know here and that and the other thing. But I guess the point is I don't even know how long how long they shot for on this film. It felt like a forty day movie maybe. But it's yeah, their budget's well. not super high. You know, they're 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 those independent filmmaker guys that they that, like you said. It's like they have to come in on a certain budget, and for that, they are allowed a, a modicum of creative control. And it's small. It, there are locations in this film, but it's very much shot in on real locations around LA. There might be a few. There might have been a few bits bits and pieces here and there. His apartment interior might have been not a location. I don't know, but it, but certainly it was. You know. Easier to uh, easier to do than if you're going to construct things. And anyhow, yeah. Any other final thoughts? I don't know. I've had a lot of final thoughts and tangential thoughts. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm not so sure. I followed the David Mamet's edict of uh, point and going That's okay. straight line. That's okay. But I have read a lot of interviews with him where I, where he does point that out, and I I would agree with him. I also think Mr. Mamet is is extraordinarily focused and and unique in that way, and I don't think you know. I think. I think that's one reason why lawyers have have written a lot of actually written a lot of Law and Order episodes because they they can think in a clear line. Um, it isn't necessarily very exciting, but yeah, <laughs> it does allow uh, it does allow you to get through. Um, well, it'll be interesting. You point I, I didn't know of this. Um, John Turturro is doing a, a, a not really a sequel, more like a. No, I think he's doing. I think he's doing that character from this film. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. No, what's the word for that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a it's a it's a character. I don't know. What do you call that? It's like a it's a, it's not it's not none of the spinoff. Spinoff is the word. It's a spinoff, but it's not even a. I don't know if it is a spinoff. What is it though? Who knows? It's interesting. They're taking this character and they made a sequel, but it's not the Coens doing it. And what's the story? And what's the tone? Is it something completely different? Because he's a pedophile. He's right. a, he's a. Um, but is he pathetic? But it, does he do? What, Toro does really well, which is reveal this layer of how pathetic he is. Oh, I can't wait. It's called, according to the very brief internet article I, I pulled up before we watched the movie, it's called Going Places. Right. So that's all it's I going know. No, it's going Nowhere is, and, is, 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 is the real title of the picture, and, I guess. And they, yeah. they apparently shot it last summer. Or shot part of it last summer. Right. So that's all, all I know. But I... I with trepidation, look forward to it. Yeah, I mean, what could it be at this point, 20 years later? Unless it's absolutely brilliant, what could it possibly be? It's sort of like making a sequel to... Um, what's another example of a sequel where they decide to make a sequel 20 years later? I'm not talking about Star Wars. Oh, there's tons. I mean, Blade Runner just did their big one. Yeah, but... but but I'm thinking Blade Runner is still a film which we reference as a work of art. It's up there in sure, some sure. form. That pop culturally we know what this is, but but I mean there's been so many recently. Yeah, I'm just thinking of I'm just thinking of like like Big Lebowski is is I know known, but it's not that kind of a franchise idea where you could say okay bring it back again and do it. So I kind of almost wonder like what the what could the audience be for? The, do you think do you think it's the audience for this film? I wonder. Well, you I mean it's got such a cult following that you think. People will check it out. Yeah. If, you, if it dropped, if it just dropped on Netflix, it would do well. 
that's probably where. You know yeah. what I mean? It yeah. was just it would it would people I would check it out for sure. But I, I wouldn't. I guarantee you, you, I give you I would give you ten to thirty minutes of my time. But would it be sad that if that drops on Netflix alongside The Irishman, which is Scorsese's picture, because I would much rather see Scorsese's picture in a theater, and that's where we have. Yeah, the two are not mutually exclusive. You can you can watch them both. <laughs> I guess. But yeah. Well, that's where, but it's also, that's kind of, it's interesting. We're in that t- weird time now where, uh, you know, things are legitimized regardless of where they land. You know, I think, uh, I think you, there's still some. Yeah, but they're more disposable. They're legitimized, but they're more disposable. There's no question we are in the era of disposability. Um, I mean, even it's. I was going to note that Star Wars felt more disposable to me. I don't. That's a whole other conversation. Whole other conversation. Yeah. I don't want to go there. But but I but but my feeling has since the mid '90s, the late '90s, we have been in an era of disposability as far as music is concerned, and and certainly over the last ten years, where I mean, it's just the ability, the speed at which we're asked to to consume. And then just sort of go through the, our, our creative and mental digestive system and out the other end, um, in terms of the, just the notion of binge watching, which has become, you know, a series, which has become kind of, oh, it's expected that's how you're going to appreciate them. You know, so, well, what about the whole, the wait week to week? I mean, nothing has a chance to build. I know that's not the era we live in. Yeah. I'm simply, and I'm not trying to pine for another era. No, but there is something to it. And I try to do that myself even when I when I, you know, buy a season on disc or whatever. I try to let it spread out. I try not to do it all in one day because I want to be able to think about it. I want to sure. be able to return to it. Uh, but it, it's interesting. I, I'd be curious to talk to um, like younger film students and just get their thoughts on a movie like this now. You know? and this, this Specifically this film? Well... Th- or films sure. like this. Or films, or films like, like this. this. But even just, just talking about like people that grew up that are growing up and coming you know, I came of age as a film connoisseur at an age when movies like this were coming out. You know? Yeah. And so to talk to somebody who is coming of age at a time where films are disposable or being made disposable, and then you're confronted with something like this, like how does it how do you take that in? Well, I'll say one thing, which is that when you're young, things move fast, and you don't think there's ever going to be a time when you'll be nostalgic, unless you begin with that nostalgia. Um, and and I felt differently in my twenties, and I felt in my thirties, and I'm feeling now in whatever whatever period I'm in. <laughs> and you know, but I but I have to say is like you know, if I were if I were starting now, I wouldn't. I'm not sure I'd want to start because everything I like about films part of, you know, some of which is emblematic in the film that we saw tonight. Um, but everything I like about films requires a little bit of an approach that's a little bit like wine, you know, and, and, and I don't, and, and I think, but I think all, and I say this, I say this cautiously because I don't want to sound pretentious about it, but all art and art is not what you make. Art is what ends up happening if it's good. Okay. Everything that we appreciate, we wish to appreciate that way. Um, you don't go to a museum and run, you don't get on a scooter and scoot by all the exhibits unless you're like Cameron 
and Ferris and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it's a totally different vibe and a totally different thing. They weren't there to do that. Um, so, you know, what are we what are we saying about the work that we're doing or what are people saying about the work that they're supposedly appreciating? But it's only worthy for like that five seconds. I mean, it. it or 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 the or the binge watch or what? It's it's more disposable than it was. Is it is an episode say of like Star Trek the original series as disposable? I can watch that for seventy nine hours straight a lot less, but I can watch that for seventy nine hours straight. Does that make it? Is, is am I going to have the same experience with that yeah. in that period if I did that than I would now? And I think no. I think I, I love the wine analogy. I like that a lot because it's like it's not meant to be. It's it's not it's it's content over or or quality over um, quantity, mm-hmm. you know. It's just that it's not about how much you can watch in a short amount of time. It's about it's about are you appreciating and understanding what you're watching, and also, uh, you know, it's also interesting to. I mean, again, to reference to Big Lebowski, I just had to laugh that the TV the guy the TV producer slash writer the showrunner of that show. Uh, uh, in 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 the movie, you know, <laughs> Iron Lung, because his career basically has been as a sausage grinder. You know, yeah. what I mean, he's been grinding sausage all his career, right? I mean, uh, uh, as someone who would have been that age and probably had been working, you're tra- transposing out of watching the film. Probably would have, was working in the '60s and early '70s in television, and then be the age she is in that Iron Lung there. Uh, in the film, uh, it was television was very much like that at the time. Yeah. That being said, they when they referred to uh, a show they were working on, an episode they were in, they didn't call it the episode, an episode. They didn't call it a segment. They didn't call it any of that. They called it a film. Hmm. If you read all of the, if you, you know, one of the things that I enjoy reading, which is the history, of the film, and a lot of interviews with a lot of a lot of old time writers and old time filmmakers and that sort of thing. And I've got a lot, like a library that I go back to a lot. I just really, you you hear that phrase used a lot. They talk about it as the film. So they're looking at them as many films. But I do think that one can extrapolate from that, that they, they're, you know, certainly with the shows they cared about. And there aren't that many. But with things like the Twilight Zones, with things like the, like uh, the Star Trek original series shows and some others that they cared about them enough to call them that. I think that there's, yes, they shot on film, but I think there was something more there. Yeah. And I think it had to do a little bit with wine. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. It's like, it's funny. My, um, my son was asking yesterday, uh, I collect criterions, um, as, uh, as one should, as yeah. one should. <laughs> and, and my son was asking, he's like, what's the big difference between that and just like a regular DVD. And of course my wife's, Smart ass response from the other room. More expensive. Yeah. They cost a lot more. (laughs) And I was like, and I had to, and I said, listen, we're going to have this conversation right now. You know, and and explain, like, there's a reason they cost more. And it's not just because it's a prestige price. It's because they put the money and time into preserving these films and, and doing the restoration on them. But also going in and doing, you know, these supplemental features. Film, like, film school in a box. That's criteria. That's what I told her too. Yeah, yeah. like that, and then, you know, the essays they do. It's like you're not just slapping them. You know, taking a, a digital file, slapping it on a disc, and putting it out. Yeah, you're, they're they're giving you something to appreciate with it. It's, yeah. it's a full course, mm. like you said. And, and and I've often said that it, you know, if I was starting out again today, or even to people that are, it's like if you want to save yourself some money, just you know, 
get the Criterion Collection. You know, and, and and a lot of it, you know, the uh, Toronto Public Library, their their canopy, their online streaming service gives you like three hundred titles for free, and a lot of them come with bonus features. They well. do come with bonus features. Some, That's I think, the thing that I think they do. I I wonder I wonder if they do, but I but I'm very happy to know that they do. Listen, I remember I'm just a little bit older than you, and I remember <laughs> I remember the early days of Criterion because I remember Laserdiscs, yeah. which I owned when they were you know when they when they came out the Criterions. I'm not kidding, like you know up here in Canada they were 120 bucks, 130 bucks a movie. You really had to like the movie, and you had to really, really pine for it for four months. Because if you were going to be able to afford to do that on their five dollars and twenty-five cents an hour, you were making as an usher at the at the largest movie theater in Montreal that I was at the time, and you walked literally around the corner to Sam the Record Man in Montreal, and you looked at their wall of Criterion, a very small wall, but nonetheless a wall of Criterion. It would. You would sit there and you would go, oh, I love this. And then you'd turn around and you'd see an average studio release of like a really crappy transfer of Jaws 2, um, you know, uh, with the universal red bands across in Letterbox for the first time, uh, you know, that had no commentary whatsoever for 39 bucks this week on sale for $34.95 or $34.99. You wouldn't want to buy that, but you were torn between two worlds. So the fact is, is that the fact is that I remember that period as being a very wonderful time, and also a uh, you know the evolution of of the ability to get a film film school in a box, and the ability for these things to exist was just I can't tell you that was just the most it was wonderful because I grew up wanting that I grew up pining for those things. Um, yeah, I grew up. You know, I was seven when Star Wars came out, and those films obviously were very influential because they were the films that were extraordinarily well covered in terms of having documentary material shot about their making and marketed to people just like me who wanted to know how things were done. Um, They were really the first time that that had been done and done well. Um, and then the next wave would have been James Cameron stuff and the Criterion stuff around that time, around the early nineties. And yeah, those are incredible. So yeah, in terms of, in terms of preserving films, in terms of doing that, we're now in an age where we don't think about seeing a film in its original aspect ratio until we watch Netflix and go, why have you cropped the side? But, (laughs) but we largely don't worry about it. It's available to us. Um, so yeah, but yet we take a lot less time to appreciate it, right? It's kind of ass backwards, but you know, at the same time, reality says there's only so much time in our lives to, to and there's so much out there to see, so much wonderful stuff. Which reminds me, I've got to see another couple of Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. <laughs> Segway. Yeah. Let's let's do that. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Thanks for joining us and getting super nerdy about The Big Lebowski. If you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lalon Jeremy, and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there, or an Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to this thing. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby.
to get ourselves a treat.